and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Thank you for joining me. I wanted to start out by saying, wow, I have gotten a record number of submissions lately. I absolutely love it. It gives me the opportunity to group the stories together in a more complimentary way. That doesn't mean I want you guys to stop. Please keep sending them to scarytosleep at gmail.com. Also, I've gotten this question quite a few times lately. I do not require exclusivity to your stories. These stories you send me are 100% yours and you can do whatever you'd like with them. If you want to send them to me and to the No Sleep Podcast and to any other fictional horror podcast or YouTube channel, feel absolutely free to. In fact, I encourage it. We all have different ways of telling your story, and the more you can get your work out there to the masses, the better. You can find some of my own stories on YouTube as well as on the No Sleep Podcast. Having others bring my stories to life gave me the courage to start this show. I just feel so grateful that so many of you have chosen me to tell your story. I know my way is a little wackier at times than some of the other podcasts, so it warms my heart every time I see that I have a new submission in my inbox. Also, I know I've said this before, but someone out there may need to hear this today. I want you to know that just by hitting play on this podcast, you have touched someone's life. Every single one of you listening right now has changed my life for the better, and I thank you. You are doing good in the world, even if you didn't realize it. First up this week, let me put away my sappy hat, (laughs) is a very Twilight Zone-esque story from author Ronnie Fordham. Ronnie currently has an anthology of his stories out on Amazon called A Dialogue of Terrors. You can also follow his subreddit and profile, Ronnie14, For more of his stories, I'll leave a link to all those in the show notes. His story that I'm presenting this week is, We Watched Some Weird Infomercials. Oh, and I almost forgot, uh, I don't have the rights to New Age Girl by Dead Eye Dick, so unfortunately I had to use a cheap substitute, so forgive me and enjoy the episode. We were back for the next party, just a little later than anticipated, 10 years later, but hey, Elizabeth and I finally made it. We finally made the long-awaited sequel to our favorite spring break in Panama City Beach, Florida. Only now we weren't hard-partying FSU students, instead we were 29 and settled down in the suburbs, married with full-time teaching jobs and parents as well. Yeah, we loved Sam and Carol, and raising them proved far more rewarding than any of the binge drinking and wild nights spent during yesteryear. But, like a tantalizing time machine, the allure of reliving our youth came calling from time to time. If only for a weekend, at least. A one-off shot at traveling back to 2012. So, Liz and I set aside the time. We let our kids stay with my folks, and on a Friday in April, we left our home in pleasant Tallahassee for the decadent debauchery of PCB. Like a couple of over-eager college students, we descended upon the beach. The water was still cold, but spring break was still going strong for all the waves of college kids. 
and us hard-partying parents. Even commercialized by snowbirds, PCB was still a party destination, one chock-full of alcoholics, diners, and cheesy putt-putt golf courses and amusement parks that had been there since the glory days of the 1960s surf culture. Noise was everywhere. During prime time, you'd hear obnoxious screams, incessant chit-chat, and a never-ending soundtrack that coasted from the Beach Boys to Nicki Minaj. Even in the still of the night, you'd hear stray stragglers and the peaceful lullaby of crashing waves. Together, Liz and I got drunk on the beach, indulged at Captain Jack's Seafood Buffet, made an intoxicated investigation through the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, and then we made our midnight rounds through the local Walmart. The only problem was I'd forgotten to book a motel room. Honestly, I wasn't aware just how much the condominiums had conquered our college escape. The mom and pop motels of yore, now gone with our early 20s. Needless to say, Liz and I couldn't get an oceanfront view. Instead, we ended up at the notorious Coconut Grove, or Nut Ove, as the Roach Motel's broken neon sign proclaimed. Coconut Grove was two stories of a yellow eyesore. Like a stage full of Florida cliches, the motel featured skinny palm trees and a modest swimming pool out front. The bare minimum to attract desperate tourists. Being a few miles away from the actual beach also meant cheaper rates. And cheaper rates meant more unsavory neighbors, with no shoreline breeze. Their collective cigarette smoke dominated the motel's seedy atmosphere. Around 1am, Liz and I crashed in room number 11. Needless to say, it was, <laughs> it was ugly as shit. The room only had one bed, a coffee maker, and a bulky TV. I didn't even see a Bible in the dresser. Not that Sin City, Florida needed it. Or that Coconut Grove could even afford one for every room. In the corner was a cramped bathroom, unsuitable for anyone over 200 pounds. Apparently, Nut Ove had put all its money into nurturing those palm trees. Every few feet, plastic coconuts broke up the monotony of our hideous yellow walls. The weak AC unit did its best to stifle the room's cigarette smell. Our walls no match for the loud shouting and Jimmy Buffett soundtrack outside. To top it all off, this shithole wasn't even that cheap. We still had to pay the beach premium even when the swimming pool was the closest thing we had to an ocean view. But Liz and I didn't complain. We'd stayed in far nastier places during the FSU days, and now for the first time in months, we had real privacy. A suburbanite spring break. Together, we laid out on the stiff bed, intoxicated and relaxed. A nightstand lamp, our only light. Both of us held a Miller light, me and my boxers, Elizabeth in her lingerie. I wasn't very tall, but stayed in good shape. Handsome, even with large glasses. Clean-shaven and with a nice, smooth brown complexion. Of course, I could be neurotic, but the booze certainly helped keep me fun and carefree. Less paranoid than normal, especially tonight. Even Liz was surprised to see me all smiles when we checked into coconut hell. Liz's short black hair and slender frame accompanied a wacky personality. Her poise was always strong, 
Liz, the eccentric writer to my history nerd. Her green eyes beamed any time we went on an adventure, and they sure as hell did when we checked into here. Michael, put on the TV, she told me in a playful demand. Grinning, I grabbed the remote and followed orders. A little snapped to get you hot, my baritone voice joked. (laughs) Maybe forensic files, (laughs) she teased. I like the sound of that. Like a battle cry, a rock star's scream erupted from the TV. And then came an infantry of electric guitars and harmonies, an alt-rock beat straight from 1994. On screen, a grainy music video played. In the corner, white font spelled it out for us. New Age Girl by Dead-Eyed Dick. The band's enthusiastic roars grabbed our ears. Liz and I's drunken stupor captivated by this 90s gem. I flashed her a smile. You want me to change it? <laughs> Hell no! Liz yelled. Adamant, she knocked the remote out of my hand. Leave it here! Dead-Eyed Dick's harmony sounded even louder, like a serenade right above my shoulder. I figured the station was just turning it up. Channel 14, ready to get this party started. Liz turned her sparkling emerald eyes towards me. Didn't Ben play this last time we were here? I let out a drunken chuckle. (laughs) Yeah, his ass almost got us kicked out. (sighs) I felt a tight grip on my shoulder with sloppy slowness. I turned but saw no one just the bite-sized bathroom behind me. The force of the band's roars must have hit me, but I was too drunk to care. And judging by Liz's cringy sing-along, so was she. Mary Moon! She cried, her voice reminiscent of a southern banshee. (laughs) A dying one. So we let the infomercial play on. Thanes Incorporated 90s subversive rock classic box set. We could get all these goofy, sometimes cheesy 90s hits for only $19.99. Everything from Space Hogs in the meantime, to Luscious Jackson's Naked Eye, to Natalie Imbruglia's Torn. I gotta say, these were some gems. If Liz hadn't reminded me what century I was in, I might have called that toll-free number right then and there. Commercial was almost five minutes and completely strange. Outside of baby boomer targeted local channels, I hadn't seen a CD ad on TV in years. Not only that, but the commercial itself looked like a relic from the early 2000s. There was no attempt at high def, no mention of a web page or social media, and shit. Baines Incorporated even offered the set on cassette tape. All while a hyper-masculine deep voice kept telling us what a steal this was for $20. Then again, the infomercial was about as weird as Channel 14 itself. The Booth Network. The channel's logo, nothing more than a pale androgynous face. One with a wicked grin. I'd never heard of Booth, nor had a clue where it was even being broadcast from. But still, Liz and I consumed the music like drugs. These forgotten songs, sweet, nostalgic candy to our ears. The private concert swept us back to the 90s. 
back to our childhood. The narrator announced the reasonable price once more, and then came his barrage of shipping and handling fees. A machine gun of phone numbers and addresses. Party onto the 90s subversive rock classics, the enthused voiceover proclaimed. In a seamless transition, another infomercial appeared. On screen, an older white man stared back at us. He was skinny, hollow cheekbones, his silver suit somewhere between a spacesuit and a golden age tuxedo. With trimmed gray hair and a smooth, calm face, this host had the radiance of a bygone movie star and an ominous voice ripe for black-and-white horror films. Low-budget sci-fi music played all around him, the type of spooky theremin-made scores not heard in popular culture since the Kennedy administration, yet the music was even more unsettling here in 2019. Like a news anchor from the future, the man sat at a bland desk, his backdrop nothing more than a black wall, an empty galaxy. His harsh gaze stayed on Liz and I. His precise delivery said the words of either a madman or a televangelist, or hell, maybe both. This isn't just you, he said in a deliberate, gravelly voice. Your life isn't just here on this earth, but within layers. Many layers we can't see. Layers we can't understand. Liz and I exchanged knowing smirks. Oh boy. The host threw his arms up in righteous frustration. You think that we're the only ones in the entire galaxy? (laughs) Of course not. But no, it's not just aliens or extraterrestrials. Not just them, but parallel worlds running alongside ours. In crazy professor mode, the man's hand gestures went wild. You got us here, but then you also have you hidden from yourself. The other you. He hit the desk for emphasis. Maybe that's real, or maybe it's the duplicate, but it's there. All the different timelines, all the overlaps, they are right here with us. Pausing, the man reached under the desk. Not for a cigarette or beer like I figured, but for a small remote. (laughs) He's... Getting serious, I quipped to Liz. Oh yeah, she responded. On screen, the host waved the remote around. His mannerisms, much like his lecture, long veered out of control. You can find these alternate worlds if you look hard enough, he said. Discreet, he pressed a button on the remote, making the camera move in a little closer attention to where you last placed things. Remember the details. The music picking up. The man leaned in closer towards the screen, 
closer toward us. And most importantly, open your eyes. With a dramatic flourish, he stood up. He now resembled a god in that black backdrop. Because they're all around you, and they've always been. Crawling across the screen, spooky yellow font spelled out a toll-free number. $19.99 for Dr. Duriff's frightening metaphysics. Come to Dr. Duriff, the hypermasculine narrator said. Our 90s stoner now emulating a cryptic caretaker. For the secrets to our world. Like a preacher confronting his congregation. Dr. Duraf walked towards the camera. You can see them, he hollered. They make mistakes and cross over here. If you pay attention, you can see the mistakes. The theremin music rose to a roaring crescendo, a soundtrack for Dr. Duraf's wild highlights. Of course, the 1999 and various phone numbers also returned for a curtain call, as did the narrator's speedy rundown of hidden fees. Liz took a casual sip of booze. We should buy it. I nodded. I bet it'll open our eyes. The five-minute infomercial faded away. Liz and I now sat in front of a black screen. Everything became so quiet and slow. We heard no one outside, and no one behind the thin walls. Even the smell of cigarettes had evaporated, gone with the booth network. Uneasy, I faced Liz. She was almost done with her Miller Lite. Liz was always a faster drinker than me. You want to change it? I asked, hoping my drunkenness kept my voice from sounding too scared. Liz gave the TV a weird look. There ain't nothing coming on. I forced a chuckle. I I think that's it. A rebellious scream interrupted me. 90s subversive rock classics had risen from the grave. Our private concert began once more. The same opening act, Dead Eye Dick. They're back, Liz joked. This drunk eye was even grooving to the song. Can we leave it here? You read my mind, Liz beamed. She held her long neck out toward me. I'm liking that doctor, too. So am I. I clanged my beer into hers. Cheers to 90s rock. In an entertaining loop, both infomercials kept playing. Five minutes of cheesy rock, followed by five minutes of the deranged Dr. Duraf. It was entertaining enough. Like obnoxious theater patrons, Liz and I talked back to the screen. A few more beers in, and we were even singing along to the music. Not to mention reenacting the good doctor's many manic ticks. You can see the mistakes, Liz yelled in mock fashion. That's the greatest 1999 we will ever spent, I added. Laughing, Liz gave me a light shove. (laughs) Don't forget shipping and handling. 
After 30 minutes of this infomercial double feature, Liz and I yawned in unison. The drunken karaoke had worn us out until the inevitable morning sex. You ready for bed? She asked me. Yeah, I replied. The booming theremin score drew us both toward the TV. At all the toll-free numbers being displayed, the many addresses, and at Dr. Duraf and his eccentric element. If you pay attention, you can see the mistakes! He howled. The camera stayed on the man's fiery face. His wild eyes, his sincerity for the subject. And then the show faded to black, back to a brief intermission. The TV cut off. I turned to see a smiling Liz holding the remote. Time for bed, she said. Gotcha, I said. In a drunken struggle, I managed to turn out the light. In the quiet darkness, Liz led me to the bathroom. She hurled all our long necks into the trash bin, a garbage pile of beer. There, the two of us stood in the cramped room, inches away from each other. I nodded toward the trash bin. I'd say we got pretty close to college. Mm Mm-hmm, Liz replied, caressing my arm as she leaned in closer. Hopefully that carries over to the morning. Like an alarm, the rocker's opening scream shattered our intimacy. Somehow, dead-eyed Dick found their way back on stage. What the fuck? Liz yelled. I followed her out of the bathroom. I thought you turned it off. I did! New Age girl blanketed whatever silence we had. The glowing TV and nightstand lamp destroyed the darkness. Amidst Deadeye Dick's catchy beat and insistent roars, Liz and I looked on in paralyzing unease. Yeah, we stood right outside the bathroom. Right here at Coconut Grove. Right here in room number 11. Our walls were the same putrid yellow plastic coconuts still surrounded us, and even the smell of cigarettes had returned. Only, I I, I saw Liz and I lying in bed, me in my boxers, Liz in her lingerie, both of us holding Miller lights, exactly how we were a mere 30 minutes ago. On screen, the band's roars continued, their catchy chorus now hollow to Liz and I's horror. At least to this Liz and I. In bed, the two of us were still laughing and smiling, still enjoying the suburbanite spring break. You want me to change it? I heard myself say to Liz number two. <laughs> The other Liz yelled. We watched her knock the remote out of the other Michael's hand. Leave it here. Hey! The real Liz yelled. Who the fuck are y'all? Supportive, I grabbed a hold of her hand. Yeah. What is this? 
I hurled at these intruders. But we got no response. Like a disinterested audience, the couple chose to ignore us, disregard our cries, even when Liz reached out and grabbed Michael number two's shoulder. All he did was turn and look right at us. But he had no reaction, as if he saw right through Liz and I. In a shocking epiphany, I recognized that confused look, the same one I had when I felt someone clutch my shoulder. Only I didn't know at the time it was Liz's worried touch. Drunk and indifferent, the second Michael just turned and looked back at the commercial, entranced by this 90s-a-thon. To my horror, I realized the doppelganger couple just didn't care. They were oblivious, like the infomercials, they just stayed in their loop of drunken bliss, their eyes glued to the TV. In the doorway, the 90s rock washed over Liz and I's ever-growing fear. Sure, our counterparts didn't see us, but we damn sure saw them. Liz yanked me back toward the bathroom. Come on, she said in a trembling voice. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw the trash bin. The now empty bin. Our Miller Lite mountain was gone. Then we came to a terrified stop. Even through the darkness, Liz and I could see the man standing right in front of the shower. Even without the theremin score, the man was eerie. Like an ominous statue, he stood so quiet and still. His silver suit somehow glistened, his bright eyes laser-focused on us. And in that frightening instant, Dr. Duraf's many mad ideas became all the more clear to Liz and I. The mistakes and overlaps in our realities all the more noticeable. Dr. Duraf didn't even have to say a word, especially not when that knowing smile spread across his lips. This next story is by the night blogger himself, Al Bruno III. Yes, it is the second week in a row that I have featured one of Al's stories, but after my last episode, he sent me this one, and look, I am about to issue a serious trigger warning to those of you with claustrophobia. I have mild claustrophobia. It's never been bad enough to be an issue in real life, but you guys. I had to stop recording this story a couple times to make myself breathe, and that is not a joke. There is one line in particular that my body involuntarily just stopped working and wouldn't say it out loud. I just, I was trying to record and my, it's like my mouth just went blah, 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 blah. Like, no, we're not even saying it. I don't want to think about it. And my brain just shut itself down. Okay. I guess it's payback from the universe. For that pimple-popping story that so many of you hated me for. Which was also by Al, by the way. 
dude's got a real knack for pushing the phobia button. Anyway, here is Waiting for the Miracle. First Station Brother Simon and the Elders of the Fellowship led Judith out of the settlement of Arbaton, through the tall corn stalks to the brown sawgrass that covered the meadow of Larn. They would go no further because the Vulgate of the Magnamator decreed that from this point on the supplicant must walk alone. Judith wore only a thin white robe with a cowl. Judith was younger than most supplicants, barely a woman in the opinions of some, but she had learned every verse of Sibylle's writings, and she had passed the tests of purity and strength with ease. No one could deny she was ready for this. As was the custom, the soil of the meadow had been sprinkled with shards of broken glass. They gleamed in the morning light like dewdrops. Judith walked carefully, but the flesh of her bare feet were ragged and bloody by the time she reached the vessel of transubstantiation. To an outsider, the vessel would look like an old steamer trunk, but it had been blessed by Brother Simon in the name of the Holy Mother. Now, every angle and surface was infused with divine power. Kneeling beside it, Judith lifted the lid and felt along the inside her fingers tracing the rope handle that had been added. Judith looked back to see the elders watching her, ready to pray when she took her place in the vessel, and ready to give chase if she tried to run, tried to make it past the tall fences to the interstate. Judith remembered the last time that happened the way the failed supplicant Lillian had been dragged back to the settlement, the way she had been tied down and given a hundred lashes. That had been ten years ago. The woman still lived. Her home was on the north side of the settlement where she made candles and sour wine. Her face and body were a tangle of scars. She had no husband, no children, and when she died, she would be left to the animals. Was that what made the ruined woman come to Judith last night? Lillian whispered through her window that trying to escape had been the best decision she ever made. Alone in the meadow, Judith prayed that she would have the strength to survive the inner wilderness and that Sibylle would find her worthy. No supplicant had been found worthy in over a generation, leaving the fellowship without a holy mother. Now there was only Brother Simon to lead the way. Brother Simon who had gelded himself to prove his devotion. Judith admired him, and like him, she had no intention of turning away from her great calling. She had wanted this since she was twelve years old, and hadn't there been signs and portents to encourage her? Finally, 
It was time to climb into the vessel of transubstantiation. To fit, she had to tuck her knees up tight beneath her and bend down until her head was almost level with them. After a moment's fumbling, she found the rope handle attached to the inside of the steamer trunk slid. She gave it a good hard tug. Nothing happened. She pulled again. Still nothing. The lid wouldn't quite close. There was still half an inch of space keeping the trunk from clicking shut completely. She shifted around a little, trying to make herself smaller, and exhaled for as long and hard as she could. Then she pulled again on the handle. The lock clicked. She listened for the elders to approach and checked to make sure she was secure. It wasn't unheard of for supplicants of weak faith and strong ambition to try and keep the lid from truly closing, or jamming the lock with mud. As Brother Simon always said, no chances can be taken in matters of faith. She heard their hands move over the vessel, felt them jostle it this way and that. Satisfied there was no earthly escape for her, they left the meadow of Larn, abandoning Judith to the mercy of the elements and the wisdom of Sibylle. Second station. For a time, there was only darkness. Darkness and the sounds of her shallow breaths. There was a nervous fluttering in her stomach as she worked to calm it by reciting the Vulgate of the Magnumator, those tales and proverbs of faith set down by Shelia Small in the year of 1979. The year before an angry god cleared the earth, leaving behind nothing more than a veil of illusions and lies to beguile the unwary. Only those who dwelt in the grace of Sibylle were allowed to truly live. By the time Judith reached the sacred hymns of Addis, her holy prison had grown warm. She could imagine the afternoon sun shining down on the vessel of transubstantiation, making the new padlock shine and faux brass fittings glisten. The songs of birds and chirping of cicadas were muffled but still recognizable. She even heard the illusion of a jet airplane pass overhead. It was so easy to look upon a sight like that and be fooled into thinking the outside world still thrived. The rush of adrenaline faded and her eyelids began to grow heavy. She was more tired than she realized. Judith yawned, but her position in the trunk made it little more than a hiccup. The sacred songs began to jumble together. She didn't want to sleep. She wanted to be strong and alert, for every moment of her ordeal, but it was so dark in the trunk. The dreams that rushed up to meet her were of familiar faces and old arguments. All of her family and friends had tried to talk her out of this, sometimes out of doubt and sometimes out of love. Judith might have let them sway her 
if she hadn't been absolutely certain of her calling. Soon, they would understand. Soon, she would be the new Holy Mother. This is what she had been born for. It was not her destiny to become another corpse at the bottom of the Great Ravine. Third Station It was night when she awoke again. The bird sounds had been replaced by crickets and frogs. Her shoulders and spine were aching. Her feet had gone numb. She wanted to inhale deeply, but the unnatural position she was held in prevented that. It felt to Judith like she was trapped in a giant fist that was slowly closing in around her. Was that it? Was the vessel of transubstantiation somehow shrinking? There was no stopping the panic, the terror that came with that thought. Judith clawed at the walls of the trunk until her nails broke, and she left trails of blood on either side of her. She called out for help. She howled and sobbed. Fourth Station The sounds and chill of the morning called her back to consciousness. Her head ached. Her hands ached. She had soiled herself, and even though it had been an inevitable part of the trial, she still felt shame and disgust. Had her faith really been so weak? Was this how it had been with the others? Fear? Pain? Madness? And then death? No. Judith told herself. She couldn't believe that. It wasn't pride or foolishness that set her upon this path. She knew the fellowship of Sibylle was growing weaker despite the best efforts of Brother Simon. The Holy Mother had always said she knew her time would be brief and that she would be martyred by the faithless. They needed a new Holy Mother desperately. Brother Simon was doing his best, but he needed three wives to assist him in his duties, each one a young scholar, wise and beautiful beyond her years. The Fellowship could never move forward on the path of Sibylle without a woman leading them. No man could do it. Not even a man as devout and self-sacrificing as Brother Simon. Fifth Station By her fourth day in the vessel of transubstantiation, hunger and thirst competed for attention with the muscle spasms that traveled along her body. Judith tried to keep her mind focused on the Vulgate of the Magnamator, but instead, her thoughts kept returning to the subject of food, especially the taste of wild blackberries, what she wouldn't give to have a few of those with her now. 
just a handful. At first the sound was so faint that she was sure she was imagining it. A deep animal grumbling punctuated by labored breathing. Before she knew it, the sound was right outside her holy prison. Beasts usually stayed away from the Meadow of Larn. The shards of broken glass saw to that, but this one's curiosity or hunger must have gotten the best of it. Judith forced herself to stay quiet as the creature chuffed and grumbled. Children of the Fellowship were always warned about the bears that lived in the forest. But no one had ever seen one. It had been a game among the teenagers to look for them, to have something to brag about. The most anyone ever encountered was the occasional group of campers. Such strangers might look innocent, but the teenagers of the Fellowship knew they were the living embodiments of temptation and far more dangerous than any beast. They were always dealt with, harshly. Judith had been part of these acts of secret savagery, only twice. Once when she was twelve, and once when she was seventeen. Both times she had been amazed and horrified at how much those devils in human shape had bled and begged, just like real people. The thing that might be a bear nudged the steamer trunk, rocking it in place. Judith squealed and tried to cringe away, but there was nowhere to go. The sound of her voice encouraged the beast. It pushed against the vessel of transubstantiation again, tipping it to one side. Thump! The thing that might be a bear beat its claws against the walls of wood and leather. Thump. Thump. Each blow was punctuated by a growl that almost sounded like a bark. Judith imagined the walls of the trunk coming apart like the walls of a tent. She imagined failing at everything she'd ever prayed for. Go away! She shouted. The beast made a startled noise, then beat at the trunk again. I said go away. She raised her thirst, ragged voice as loud as it would go, bellowing orders like she would a mischievous child or amorous boy. In the name of Sibley, go away. And just like that, it did. Sixth Station Time had lost all meaning. Sometimes it was night. Sometimes it was day. Sometimes it rained. Sometimes it didn't. The creature that might have been a bear never returned, and that had been a great bolster to her faith. But now, some part of her wished it would come back, just so she could feel something more than the serene agony of dehydration and starvation. Sometimes she would dream that she had never done this, that reality was her still home in her bed, or in Brother Simon's bed. 
He had asked several times for her to become his fourth wife, but she had always refused the old man as gently as she could. To have any husband in her life, even an emasculated one, would be a distraction. She had been so sure of herself when she had entered the Medal of Larn. Just a few days of discomfort, she had told herself. How terrible could it be? And look what those few days had done to her. Locked in a box that reeked of piss, shit, and blood. Insects crawling on her skin. Muscles that ached and a head lost to confusion. More and more she began to worry that she had made a terrible mistake. Seventh Station It had been so long now. So long that she felt like she was already dead and rotting away. That she was a corpse that prayed to a goddess that didn't listen. But it wasn't that Sibylle wasn't listening, was it? Sibylle had listened but found her unworthy. And what was the fate of the unworthy? Death. All she could do now was wait. Eighth Station A few hours ago, or maybe it had been a few days, Judith had tried to gnaw her wrists open. She couldn't remember when she had decided to kill herself, but she was too weak for even that. She became more and more certain that she was already in hell, and this was her punishment for her presumption. What happened here? She started at the voice. It was familiar. It was... Elder Gregory. Another bear, they're getting too close. And that... That was Elder Mary. Judith started to laugh. She... She had been right. She was the chosen one. (gasps) She called out to them, begging them to set her free so she could offer a prayer to the light of day. Her first prayer as the new Holy Mother. (gasps) She's alive? After all this time? Elder Gregory's voice broke. It's a miracle. What do we do now? Elder Mary said. When Brother Simon spoke, his voice was calm and passionless. Throw her in the ravine with the others. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's stories. And even though one gave me an existential crisis, I know I did too. Remember, by supporting the sponsors on my show and using my offer codes, you help me out in a huge way. And that goes for any podcast you love. 
and my codes are always in my show notes if you need to reference them. You can also support the show and gain access to several bonus episodes by going to Patreon. This week's Patreon shoutouts go to Caitlin Cancelme and Joanna Good. Bring it in, you two, for the big group air hug I'm sending you. And really, thank you so much for supporting the show. I think that's all for this week. Oh, the sounds you're hearing are just a classic blustery day and some wind chimes. Growing up, my mom always had wind chimes outside, and the sound always brings me back. Remember, you can go to scareyoutosleep.com and hit that contact tab to let me know your favorite sound to relax to, or even to request one I've already played. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scareyoutosleep. You can join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash scareyoutosleep. I've been noticing um, a pattern of the page is getting a lot of likes, which I'm not complaining about. Thank you so much for liking it, and thank you for so much for recommending it. But I noticed a lot of likes, and then the group doesn't get the same ratio of, or those same people who are liking the page aren't also going to join the group, which you don't have to join the group. That is your prerogative. You can just like the page. But if in order to discuss the episodes with me and fellow listeners, and you have to actually go to the group itself, you'll know you're there because you'll have to click join and it will ask you to answer a couple of easy peasy questions just to weed out the Bitcoin shillers and the sex bots. So like I said, you don't have to join the group, but if you are going to look for the group on my recommendation from the show, then if you're just liking the page, that is not the same as going to the group. You'll see because we have discussion groups and people share scary stuff and it's a lot of fun. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.